On January 22, 2003, in Durham, North Carolina, a 51-year-old man named Robert Petrick called the police. He said that the night before, his 57-year-old wife, Janine, who's a cellist with the Durham Symphony Orchestra, had left for rehearsal and never come home. He wanted to report her missing. Police went to the parking garage where Janine parked her 1999 Mazda. They found the gold Mazda in the parking garage across from the symphony. Janine's keys and cello and her personal items were inside, and there were no signs of a struggle or a robbery. The outside of the car looked completely normal too. Police looked closer. There were no blood stains or anything else that would indicate foul play. And there was the fact that her stuff, including a cello that was worth thousands of dollars, were left inside the car, totally undisturbed. They interviewed the other members of the orchestra. No one saw anything strange in the parking garage that night. Actually, no one had seen Janine show up at practice at all. They took a closer look into her life. On the surface, Janine appeared to be a creature of habit. Friends and family said that she was thoughtful and reliable, and there was no reason for anyone to want to hurt her. She had a great relationship with her three sons who lived out of state and seemed to have a happy marriage with her husband, Rob. Did someone random attack Janine in that dark parking garage? And if it wasn't a random attack, who could have wanted to kill this sweet woman who everyone in town loved? Police started taking a closer look at Janine's intimate relationships, and pretty soon, What started out as a simple missing persons case had police digging into allegations of million-dollar fraud, love scams, and polyamorous Wiccan relationships. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Police were trying to find Janine Sutphin and to figure out if she had been the victim of some kind of random attack or if she could have gone missing voluntarily. They interviewed her friends and her family. Janine had three sons, Christopher, Stephen, and Robin. And they said that their mom, who was tiny by the way, Janine was only around four foot 11 feet tall, had been worried about carrying such a valuable instrument to her rehearsals. In fact, she had complained recently about crime near the parking garage and about the bad lighting there. She had repeatedly spoken to members of the orchestra about this. But police couldn't find any evidence that Janine had gone to practice that night. They couldn't find anyone who had seen her at rehearsal. They knew that to establish the timeline, they had to go back farther to figure out the last verified sighting of Janine. So, of course, as all true crime fans know, When a wife goes missing, police always take a close look at the husband and at their relationship. Rob said that his relationship with Janine was great, and friends and her sons said the same thing. According to the TV show Grave Secrets, Rob told police that his marriage to Janine had been so happy that they had never even spent one night apart. Janine was a widow when she met Rob. She met her first husband, Chaz Sutphin, when she was 31 years old and living in San Francisco. They had two sons together and raised Janine's son from a previous relationship. They were very happy together, but Chaz got heart disease and sadly passed away in 1995. After that, Janine taught math and science in the Charlotte school system. 
but eventually she moved to Durham. Charlotte was a more conservative and kind of preppy town. Durham seemed to appeal more to Janine's activism and independent spirit, and she seemed to thrive there. She joined the Unitarian Church, which had a tradition of social activism. And that's where she met Robert Petrick in 1999. They moved in together, and of course at first, her son said that they were asking a lot of questions about this guy, trying to be protective of their mom. They did notice that even though he called himself a computer expert and said he had clients, Rob never seemed to go to work, but he did seem to always make money. So they were happy that their mom was happy. Rob and Janine were married in June 2001, and Rob did inherit $260,000 from his mom shortly after the wedding when she passed away. But behind closed doors, Rob and Janine started having financial problems. They got worse when Janine was let go from one of her computer jobs. Janine was a person who definitely wanted to find someone to share her life with, but she was also very happy on her own, happy to wait until the right person came along. Even though she'd had a devastating loss after Chaz died, Janine was a strong person. She participated in all kinds of groups and activities that would put her out in the community. Janine hit it off with Rob, the mild-mannered computer consultant, right away. Friends said that he was super smart, kind of nerdy like Janine. Rob was from the Midwest. He was in his 50s and divorced. According to Dateline, they both loved music and the arts and cooking. Janine's son said that she was not the type to stay at home. She took up hobbies like belly dancing and taekwondo. She was feisty and independent as well as loving. Janine Supfin basically seemed like a really cool character. She and Rob clicked, and they seemed super happy together. Her son said that they never saw them argue. Even though her sons lived out of state, they talked to their mom often, usually every couple of days. So when they had trouble getting touch with her in early January 2003, for them, this was a big red flag. They said whenever they would call, Rob would pick up the phone. He told them that their mom wasn't feeling well and was depressed, or he would say she was just resting. Bottom line was that she refused to come to the phone. On January 21st, the day before Rob reported Janine missing, Janine's son Robin left a message on the answering machine she shared with Rob. According to the News and Observer, Janine's son said, quote, if I don't hear my mom's voice on my answering machine in the next 24 hours, I'm coming up there, and you don't want to see me on the other side of the door, end quote. But when police talked to Rob, he had an explanation for why Janine did not want to talk to anyone, including her sons. He shared that she had been struggling with depression. He said that Janine got so depressed that she refused to leave the house and locked herself inside. She wouldn't answer the phone, and she was avoiding talking to everyone, including her sons. He also said that he believed she was so depressed that she considered taking her own life. Neighbors and friends all told police that, yes, it had been a few days since they talked to Janine, which seemed to match Rob's version of events. Police wondered if maybe something was going on that they didn't know about, especially when detectives found the car and Janine's sons told them that Janine did not like parking in that specific spot. Her son said that that parking deck was the one that was not well lit, the one that their mom always complained about. That's why their mom always parked in the other deck. Detectives were doing forensic tests on Janine's car, and they found a clue in the driver's seat. 
Now remember, Janine was only four foot 11, and the seat had been pushed way back, like a taller person had been in the driver's seat. This indicated to detectives that the driver of the car was not Janine. Now, investigators worked on the theory that Janine had not gone missing from the parking deck. At this point, they thought she'd probably never driven there at all. Detectives believed that Janine had probably been killed before the car was driven to the lot. This was turning into a homicide investigation. Detective Michaels of the Raleigh Police Department, one of the investigators who worked on Janine's case, told the TV show Grave Secrets that the three motivating factors for homicide were sex, drugs, or money. And with no body, figuring out the motive becomes crucial. And for that, detectives had to work on that timeline and piece together Janine's last movements. They had to dig deep into Janine's life and figure out what was going on behind the scenes and who would have had a motive to kill her. Could Janine have a secret life? Friends and family said no. She loved her music, she thrived on routine, and she was devoted to her husband, Rob. Then, detectives started taking a closer look at the couple's finances. Rob was a computer specialist, and Janine was a cellist. Even though there had been some financial problems, they both made good money. But then, detectives talked to someone from Janine's bank and found out that the financial problems were much worse than they had been led to believe. Janine's bank accounts were empty. Her credit cards were maxed out. Janine's son said they had no idea that there were any money problems happening in their mom's marriage. They said Janine had always worked and always been responsible with money. Now, Rob had recently lost a couple of computer clients, and Janine had lost a computer job. But nothing seemed to explain this total financial black hole. One of her sons told the TV show Grave Secrets that he remembered something else, the kind of thing you only think about in hindsight. He said that his mom mentioned some mail had been going astray. She asked her son if he may have accidentally taken a credit card statement with him. Because, she said, it seemed that bills were coming due and she wasn't getting them. Now, this is a scam that is common to so many white-collar and red-collar cases. It's very low-tech. If someone can intercept your mail, then they have control of what you're seeing, and they can gain control of your finances much more easily. So police went to the source. They talked to the mail carriers, and the mail carriers told them that Rob did make a point of meeting them before that mail ever hit the box. Rob was intercepting the mail and all the bills, before Janine ever got a chance to see them. At this point, detectives were poring over credit card receipts and bank statements, and then they got a search warrant. When police went down to Rob and Janine's basement, Detective Michaels told the TV show Grave Secrets that Rob had an elaborate computer network set up down there that kind of looked like something out of a sci-fi movie. There were several machines all connected to each other. Detective Michaels told the TV show that while he was down there, Rob was hovering over him pretty much the entire time. He said he started to get very creeped out and kept telling Rob to back up. Detectives found evidence down there that Rob had written several checks out to himself for thousands of dollars, and they found evidence that he had been counterfeiting. Now, the detective on the case had a quote that I think is just great. It really speaks to the way in which we treat white-collar crime as somehow different from other crime. 
he broke it down and said, the only difference between forgery and armed robbery is the weapon. But again, detectives had a bunch of circumstantial evidence. They were pretty sure that Rob had done something to Janine, but they had no way to link that alleged fraud with Janine's disappearance. There was no physical evidence in the house, not a drop of blood anywhere. Then police brought in a cadaver dog, and that's when everything changed. That specially trained cadaver dog walked into the master bedroom and alerted there. The dog also alerted in the shower. The dog's trainer would later testify that to him, this meant that there had been a body in those areas at some point. So police were discovering that this wasn't just a case of someone getting into some financial trouble. Rob's entire life had been a lie. The Durham Observer did some digging into Rob's background. They interviewed his half-sisters, who basically told the paper that they knew their brother was shady and had committed financial fraud in the past, but they didn't believe that he was capable of murder. They said that Rob had been born in 1953 in a suburb of Chicago, so he actually was from the Midwest. His dad left when he was young, and the family moved around a lot, like almost every year. Rob's childhood seemed chaotic. His mom remarried at least twice after his dad left. He went to Catholic school, where according to his sisters, he was a genius, but he was bullied. At age 16, he dropped out and left town. Then Rob kind of dropped off the radar until the 80s, when he was sent to prison for fraud charges. It's not clear, by the way, that Janine ever knew that Rob had done several years in prison. When Rob got out of prison, he married a woman named April Van Damme, who he knew from high school. The couple married in 1982, and she told the newspaper that Rob ran up credit card debt and forced her into bankruptcy. April said that during the time they were married, Rob was a compulsive spender, and that by the time they separated 13 years later, she was basically broke. He left her financially devastated and ruined her credit. Rob bounced around and had a few different odd jobs. He worked for the post office for a while, and during that time, he was convicted of dumping mail into the trash instead of delivering it. So it seemed like this pattern of intercepting mail was something he'd done pretty much his entire life. After he split up with April, he moved in with a couple named Keith and Phaedra Orbeck. They described themselves as witches and neo-pagans. The three of them lived together in a polyamorous relationship for a while. According to media reports, eventually, Keith and Phaedra split up, and Rob moved on as well. Then, he met Janine Sutphin at her church in 1999. According to her sons, the church was a Unitarian church, known for attracting a congregation that had liberal views, and there was an emphasis there on getting involved and giving back to the community. By November of 2002, the couple was having serious financial problems. Janine could not figure out why, despite the fact that she was cutting corners, they never seemed to have enough money. And that's when her friend, Margaret Pam Lewis, said that Janine told her that Rob was stealing money from her accounts. Rob always seemed to have a sob story. He would say that his clients weren't paying or there had been some kind of mistake at the bank. But the bottom line was that checks were bouncing. Janine was trying to take steps to protect the money. But then Rob deposited three bad checks, totaling $49,016 into a local credit union. He hoped that they would credit his account instantly, and he tried to pull out the money, but it didn't work. Police were looking at all of these transactions. Then 
they looked into Rob's computers and his internet searches. They found multiple searches on Rob's hard drive and a Google search history about how to kill someone with your bare hands, how to deal with rigor mortis. They also found maps of lakes and searches about how to put someone in a lake. But they still had no murder weapon and no body. So the police started talking to Rob Petrick. They hoped they could get him to confess. Rob basically admitted that he may be a little bit shady financially, but he insisted that he was not a killer, and he had nothing to do with his wife's disappearance. The district attorney didn't have enough evidence to make a case against Rob. They told police to go back and find more. They had to dig deeper, because if this case, based on circumstantial evidence, was going to go to trial, they would have to connect all the dots for the jury. At this point, the investigators broke the news to Janine's sons about their suspicions. This must have been a very hard conversation because they had to tell them, your mom is probably dead, and we think your stepdad may have been involved. Since they didn't have enough to charge Rob with murder, they charged him with check fraud. Now, with Rob behind bars, police would have more time to build their case. Then, the case took another crazy turn because police got a call from a woman in Atlanta named Ann Johnson. Ann Johnson was just hanging out at home, reading the paper one morning, when she saw her fiancé, the man she had known since high school and who had just given her an engagement ring, all over the news, suspected of killing his wife. Investigators back in North Carolina were shocked when they got a call from Ann. She claimed that Robert Petrick was her fiancé. Anne told investigators that she and Rob had met in high school. But back then, they were just casual friends. They never dated. She reached out to him randomly on social media in 2001. She had no idea that he was married, and he told her that he was single. She had no reason to be suspicious. These kind of reconnections happen all the time. Over the next few months, they had a long-distance relationship. He would fly to Atlanta often. He told her that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. Six months later, they got engaged. Now, this whole time, Anne had no idea that Rob had been using Janine's money to buy those plane tickets. She trusted Rob. After all, this wasn't some stranger she met online or on a dating app. This was someone she knew from high school, which probably gave her a false sense of security. She thought that she'd found her soulmate and was going to be one of those happy reunion stories you read about. Then, police started getting even more calls. It turned out that Rob had a lot more victims out there. Different women started calling the DA's office and the police almost every day. They told them that Rob had scammed them. It turned out that Rob's real job wasn't computer specialist. It was scamming women out of money. In fact, investigators couldn't find any record of Rob having a real job at all. Rob had a perfect sense of timing. He would get involved with a woman, and then as soon as they figured out that he was scamming them, or as soon as he'd taken all their money, he would simply get out and move on to the next woman. Usually, he would find his next victim before he left the last one. Rob, the mild-mannered computer specialist, was a total chameleon. This time, though, police say that he was extra motivated to marry Anne because Anne came from a wealthy family. 
and told investigators that she had noticed that her fiancé and soulmate had been acting a little bit weird lately. She said he seemed to be stressed out, but she, like a lot of brides-to-be, probably thought it was just the stress of planning the wedding. She told Dateline that she asked Rob what was going on, and he told her that he was upset because his friend, Janine, was missing. Of course, Rob never mentioned the fact that Janine was actually his wife. On May 29, 2003, four months after Janine Sutphin went missing, fishermen were out in Falls Lake when they saw something wrapped in a tarp. It was a body that had been stuffed into a sleeping bag, wrapped in layers of tarp and sealed with duct tape. The legs had been weighed down with cinder blocks. Investigators suspected, and dental records would later confirm, that this was Janine's body. The cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. Whoever put the body there had gone to great lengths to weigh it down, which worked at first. But over time, gas is created in the body, which makes it easier for them to float. The medical examiner concluded that Janine had been suffocated and wrapped in sleeping bags. Then, the killer sealed Janine's body inside those layers of tarp. But if Rob did kill Janine, why didn't he simply move on like he did with his other victims? Why did she have to die? Her sons say that if Janine had found out what was going on, she definitely would have confronted Rob. They say that even if she had been embarrassed about the fact that she had been scammed, she would have gotten him thrown into jail. She would have called the police. And unfortunately, Janine almost certainly confronted Rob in their home when they were alone. We see this over and over in so many red-collar cases. Rob was a mild-mannered computer nerd, so even if Janine found out that he was taking her money or having multiple affairs, she probably never thought that he would physically turn on her like that. Because again, when white-collar criminals get violent, making it a red-collar case, they do it as a last resort. If they think that they can get away clean with just stealing the money, they'll usually do that because they don't want the stress or the heat of a police investigation. But this time, Rob probably saw no alternative. After Janine's body was found, police felt that they had enough to charge Rob with killing her. Rob was arrested on May 20th, 2003, the day after Janine's body was found. He was charged with first-degree murder. But again, this case was far from a sure thing for the prosecutors. At the trial, the computer evidence would become crucial, which was ironic because it seemed really weird that someone who passed himself off as a Macintosh expert wouldn't have known how to hide his computer searches. The state went through Rob's financial history and his computer searches. Prosecutors said that when Rob suspected that Janine was on to him, he started researching how to kill her. The trial started in 2005, and it was like something out of a movie. Rob ended up firing his lawyer and said he would represent himself. This is something that you see with a lot of narcissistic personality types. They have such faith in their ability to dupe people, and they're so convinced that they're the smartest person in the room, that this would have made total logical sense to Rob. Prosecutors laid out the timeline. In October, they said Rob tried to choke Janine while she was working out. On October 25, 2002, he searched for neck, snap, break, hold on his computer. He also bookmarked 22 ways to kill a man with your bare hands. 
On December 13th, he tried to cash that bad check for around $49,000. On Christmas Day, Janine told friends that he attacked her with a taser. A computer expert took the stand and testified about the digital evidence found on all the computers that police took from Rob and Janine's house. According to court records, Rob had done his searches on websites, including bloodfest666.com. Then Rob cross-examined the computer forensics expert. The expert testified about digital footprints he said the state discovered. There were also a lot of headlines at the time about the fact that Rob called himself a pagan and had had these polyamorous relationships in the past. Of course, in the fairly conservative environment of the South, this stood out. But in the end, this trial had nothing to do with religious beliefs, pagan gods, Norse gods, Christianity, or anything else. Only one thing mattered to Rob, and that was the money. Authorities also claim that Rob researched that lake. He looked up the depth and topography of the lake where Janine's body was found. And this all happened, by the way, before Rob reported Janine missing. After Janine went missing, there were the other searches for rigor mortis and body composition. Then, just a few days after that, around January 13th, Rob started telling some woman he met in a bar that his wife had died of cancer. Prosecutors said that at some point, after Janine confronted Rob about the affairs and the bounced checks, he strangled her at home, probably put her body into the shower, wrapped it in the tarp, and then loaded her into the trunk before dumping her in the lake. They said that Rob had driven the car to the parking garage that night. He was trying to give police a reason to begin their search in the wrong place, to not focus on him and the main crime scene, which was the couple's home. And this might have worked, if he had done a better job of covering up his internet searches. But of course, he had even told police where to look for the body by Googling the perfect spot to dump a body in the lake. And after he got rid of the body, that's when he started the cover-up. He told the neighbors that Janine was unavailable and started making up the stuff about depression to cover his tracks. Now, the role of Google and internet searches and murder cases, to me, is fascinating. It's one of those areas that's constantly evolving. True crime fans will probably remember that internet searches played a key role in the Casey Anthony case. And in that case, as in this one, the timing is super crucial because by figuring out timing, you can figure out who had access to the machine. Also, side note, when I think about someone having access to my computer and the idea that police could be looking through my Google searches, a terrifying thought. Obviously, we have to respect Fourth Amendment rights and thinking about doing something is not the same as doing it. But the bottom line is when someone goes missing and the person closest to them has done computer searches on how to kill, especially when they use specific search terms that refer to where the body was dumped and then the body is later found there, that has to be something that detectives consider. More and more we can see that looking at someone's Google searches is basically the closest thing you can get to hacking into their minds. According to the TV station WKMG out of Orlando, in the Casey Anthony case, a search for foolproof suffocation was done from the family computer that Casey and her mom and dad all had access to. At trial, her lawyer claimed that she was already at work when that search took place, but the TV station reported that the timing was off by an hour. So their theory is that Casey may have done the search. Would the jury have made a different decision if they knew that a mom Googled a way to suffocate someone on the last day anyone saw her daughter alive? We'll never know, 
because Casey Anthony was acquitted. But this does show that the computer expertise in these cases is only going to get more and more crucial. Google searches have been used in other murder convictions. In 2006, Justin Barber was sentenced to life in prison for murdering his wife on a beach. And in that case, he had done searches that included Florida and divorce, as well as the words trauma, gunshot, right chest, and cases. He'd also downloaded and then deleted the Guns N' Roses song, Used to Love Her, that has the lyrics, I used to love her, but I had to kill her. She's buried right in my backyard. Back at Robert Petrick's trial, Ann Johnson, the woman he had been dating and who thought they were engaged, took the stand. She testified that she had no idea what had been going on. As far as she was concerned, she and her fiancé had been planning a wedding. She had the engagement ring. She had even put a deposit down on the chapel. Rob's entire 20-year history of conning women came out in court. Rob would get close to a woman. Sometimes he would move in with her and leech off her for a while. And then eventually he would find a way to intercept the mail. One of Rob's victims said that after he stole money from her, she figured out what was going on when she found a garbage bag full of mail in her closet. And it turned out that right before Janine disappeared, she was starting to tell people the real story about the horrors that were going on at home. Another friend of Janine's testified that shortly before Janine went missing, she told this person that her relationship was falling apart. She said that Rob was stealing money and that checks were bouncing. Police believed that Rob was making plans to move on to his wealthier target. But the final nail in Janine's coffin, friends and family believed, was her honesty and integrity. So many financial fraud victims and victims of love scams are too embarrassed to ever report that they've been catfished or that someone's stolen from them. Working as a private investigator, I've seen hundreds of these cases. A lot of people think that it's people who've been burned in dating who are the most vulnerable. But actually, people who've been in really happy relationships and marriages can sometimes be the most at risk. Janine was a widow. She'd had a happy marriage. She had no reason to believe that Rob wasn't the person that he said he was until Rob's theft became extremely obvious. But everyone said Janine would not have been the kind of person to back down. She would have called the police and she probably would have called Ann Johnson to warn her, which meant that Rob's freedom and his finances were at risk. And since money was the only thing that he cared about, when that was threatened, Janine had to go. When someone represents themselves, especially when it's a murder case or something really serious, the judge has to make sure that that person understands the seriousness of the charges against them. So the court-appointed attorney, a guy named Mark Edwards, helped Rob prepare for the trial. He was with him in court. He actually talked to Dateline, and he told the TV show that he thought Rob had a case. After all, there was no direct physical evidence. And just because someone cheated does not mean they committed murder. Rob actually took this strategy, the strategy of saying, I may be a bad guy, but that doesn't mean I'm a murderer, and addressed this in his opening statement. He said the same thing that he told investigators when they were originally questioning him about Janine. He said, you'll probably make the judgment about me that I'm not the type of person you want to bring home to dinner. I believe the evidence will, in fact, show many of the allegations made by the state to be either unsubstantiated or even impossible you'll have to find me not guilty. And then the court case took an even more bizarre turn because Rob started putting his exes, the women he conned, on the stand. 
He asked one of them if she had ever felt physically threatened by him, and she said no. But then Janine's friends testified. Peg Lewis said that Janine had called her at work, crying and very upset. She said that something very alarming and scary had just happened. Janine told Peg that she had confronted Rob about the missing money and the state of their finances and said that he choked her. At the time, she was terrified. More friends testified. One said that Janine had called her very distraught after confronting Rob about the money situation. She said Janine told her that she was afraid that she was going to lose her house and her car. She said Janine felt very foolish about the situation. Another friend testified Janine had been so worried about money that she worried she wouldn't have enough to buy groceries. One of the friends said that she told them Rob had once used a taser on her. In November 2005, a jury found Robert Petrick guilty. They sentenced him to life in prison without parole. Rob and his lawyers appealed that sentence. According to court documents, he believed the judge made an error in allowing him to represent himself. He also objected to some of the cadaver dog evidence and said that the evidence related to his prior crimes and financial fraud should never have been allowed in as evidence. But the North Carolina Court of Appeals disagreed with him. They ruled against Rob in 2007. As Janine's sons and her friends try to put the pieces of their lives back together and honor and remember her, Robert Petrick is behind bars. Police say they believe he had no conscience and no remorse about what he did. And they believe there may be many more victims out there. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>